Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you and uh, good to worship together. Don't you like, uh, man, I, I'm really digging this first Sunday of the month worship with the multi-generational group leading us in worship, yeah? It's a good thing. And uh, we have done this for a while with the children with us on this Sunday morning, the first Sunday of every month for a, a long time. And then uh, Craig and the rest of that team praying and thinking about, hey, how can we take that up a notch? And we said, we need to get the kids out of the pews and let them be involved in helping us lead worship. And so I, I'm really looking forward to that every, every, every month, and I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing it. Hey, if we've not met, I'm Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want you to open the Bible with me today to Acts chapter 4. Verse 32 is where we're going to begin, and if you're using the Bible there in the pew rack, it's on page 912, 912. We are a church that uh, believes the scriptures, believes in the authority of the Bible, and so uh, each Sunday as you come and attend here, you're going to hear us ask you to open the Bible together with us, and so I hope that you'll do that and follow along with us as we read through the scriptures. Have you ever heard this line? Have you ever heard this, this saying? There are only two reasons why someone is not a Christian. Reason number one, they've never met a Christian. Reason number two, They've met a Christian. <laughs> Thank you. You anticipated, and that was right. <laughs> this passage this morning kind of, kind of shows us that. It shows us those two kinds of people in the life of a church. You have one person who really epitomizes what does it look like to be an authentic, genuine believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, and you see the overflow in his life. And then you see a couple, a husband and wife, and their life is not quite the same. In fact, it's an, it's an example of really some ugliness and hypocrisy. And it ends poorly. It ends badly. These two stories, as different as they are, belong together for some reasons. I think three reasons. As you look at the text from verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11, that's where we're going to read. Verses 32 through 36 are kind of one section. And they describe this man named Barnabas. But then you turn the page to chapter 5, and it begins, but a man named Ananias. That little conjunction, Luke uses it to show us that there's a contrast here. So grammatically, these stories belong together, even though they're different. And they belong together historically because these people are all members of the same church at the same time. And they belong together, practically speaking, because Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, they do essentially the same thing. They own property, they sell it, and they decide to give the proceeds to the church. But there's one huge difference between the offering of those two people. And we're going to see that in just a moment. I want you to look now at verse 32 because it really launches us. Remember, uh, if you've been with us, chapter 4 is, is an amazing chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, we see Peter has preached a sermon after a miraculous thing has happened and people have gathered, he's preached a sermon, thousands of people have come to faith in Jesus because of that. But then there is a group of people who are really annoyed that he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And they throw Peter and John in prison. And the next day they question them, they threaten them, and they release them. They go back to the church and the church prays together and they ask God, not for safety or protection, even though they're being persecuted, they ask that God to give them boldness, that they would continue to be faithful witnesses. And God does that very thing. And then verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 
Luke is trying to show us that the church was united, that there's a unity here in the midst of what seems to be some very different stories between Barnabas and this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And so as you think about unity and as you think about how this text falls out, I think we see together how unity is established in the church and how it's experienced in the church and then thirdly, how it can be endangered in the life of the church. And so that'll be the framework that we hang the message on, all right? Let's look at how unity is established. We see it there in verse 32. We also see it primarily, I think, in verse 33. It says this, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. As we read through Acts, it's going to sound very redundant to you, but as Christians, we have one message. We ring that bell every chance that we have. Jesus is alive from the dead. He's raised, he's risen. John Stott said, we're Easter people. And the apostles just continued to preach that message of the resurrection. And it's the resurrection that changed the lives of these people. It's the resurrection that's changed your life and mine if you're a follower of Christ. It's the resurrection of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, that establishes unity in the church. When you think about it, believing the gospel isn't what necessarily just alone means that uh, everyone is going to see eye to eye on everything, right? You're not going to see eye to eye on everything in this church. Not all of us read the same books. Not all of us choose to educate our children in the same ways. And when you think about this early church, it's large and it's diverse, at this point in time, if you just add up the numbers, and most of the time it talks about how many men have come to faith, there might be close to 10,000 people in this early church. And Acts chapter 2 tells us they're from everywhere. They're from everywhere. So, so they're very diverse, and there's a lot of them. So when you look at this church, you wonder, well, what is it that unites these people? It's not their natural affinities. It's not just their personalities. It's certainly not their language or where they're from. It's their gospel identity. That's what brings these people together. That's what establishes unity in the church, their gospel identity, the fact that they are all believers in Christ. And so people who may have been very different from one another, who may have never socialized outside of the church, suddenly in the church, through Christ, they become brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the power of the gospel and the resurrection that changes really who I am at my core and causes me to call you my brother or my sister, though we may be very different, have very different interests. And so that's how the unity of the church is established. It's Jesus who brings them together. How is that unity experienced? In verse 32, it says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Listen, it, it's experienced by every member consistently and faithfully sharing the good news and sharing what they have with everyone else. A, a little aside, there's no concept in the New Testament of a person who's a believer but not also a member. All of these who believed were of one heart and one soul. They all belonged, they all identified with this church. They were known to one another. And they experienced this unity because everyone did it. Everyone participated. No one was left out of giving and receiving. They followed what Jesus said, right? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? He said, freely you have received, freely give. If we want a, a good thing to latch onto, it would be that. Jesus said, freely you've received, so freely give. This unity was established because, and experienced because everyone did it. But it was also because everyone shared everything. 
Nothing was off limits. You, you see that in verse 32 as well. Did you see that? No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had all things in common. Uh, they were aware of one another's needs. They shared whatever they had. And in verse 35, it says they shared any time someone had a need. If you drop down to verse 35, you'll, you'll see it there. It says that the people who had houses and land sold them. They brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Everyone participated. Everything was open for sharing. And they shared anytime someone had a need. There are some things that are easier to share than others, right? Does anybody own a pickup truck? <laughs> I was looking for a, a car recently and I bought a, a Ford Explorer, not a pickup truck. But I grew up in West Virginia driving a pickup truck. And I hadn't had one for a long time. And I wanted a pickup truck. And I drove a lot of them. But I just could not bring myself to cross over the line, pay the price, and all of that. And I had so many people tell me, well, brother, if you buy a pickup truck, be ready to have people say, can I borrow your truck? And I know that's true because I've said to some of you, can I borrow your truck? So everything was, was available for sharing, right? Some things are easier to share than others. Maybe you still got that white elephant gift you got last Christmas and you can't wait to give that away to somebody else. Some things are easier to share than others. In verse 34, though, notice this. They shared things of great value. They shared property and homes. There was not a needy person among them, verse 34. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the apostles. It's a picture of John 13. They Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples because of the love that you have for one another. In verse 34, which says there was not a needy person among them, it's a reference back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where God said, I want my people to care for each other, to be generous givers and to share with one another. But that Old Testament community, that Old Covenant community failed at that. Why is it that we see these people becoming so generous? It's the same reason we see Peter preaching with such boldness. It's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living among his people, indwelling his people, when it came in Acts chapter two, that's all the difference in the world. You know, it's tough to teach a kid to share, right? If you've got a two-year-old or a three or four or five-year-old, it's, it's not easy to teach them. What's one of the first words that little kids learn? Mine, there you go, mine. I'm not even a mother and I knew that. Mine, kids learn that word very early on. You know, it's not easy to teach adults to share either. Adults, we have a hard time sharing. Sometimes we take simple, complex, sim simple concepts, you know, and we make them complex. Not because we don't really understand them, but because we don't want to put them in practice. And sharing is one of them. Beloved, I, I can't tell you how many Bible studies I've sat in, and we've started to read the story of the Good Samaritan. And I've heard so many people say, yes, but who exactly is my neighbor? It's all an effort to make an excuse to rationalize and find a way out of sharing, going the second mile. But there's no spiritual rocket science going on here. Jesus said, as freely as you have received, freely give. And that's the guiding principle here, and it's what the Spirit was empowering them to do. It's what he's asked us to do. In verse 33, it says, great power and great grace the, the apostles are sharing the resurrection and great grace is upon them all. It's the resurrection of Jesus and the grace of Jesus that opens their hearts and opens their hands 
and enables them to share. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then this life, James said, is a vapor. It's a vapor. One day, someday, we're all going to be in the glorious presence of our Heavenly Father. We're going to be there with every need that's met. And so, why in the world would we spend this time, even in this life, trying to hoard all that we can, trying to keep a hold of everything that we can? It sets us free to give in a way that nothing else does. If the resurrection is true, we don't need to treasure stuff on earth. Our treasure's in heaven. In fact, we have this foretaste of the kingdom right now in this moment because the Holy Spirit's been deposited in our lives. And so we know, hey, the kingdom has come. Jesus has risen from the dead. But one day, Jesus will return. And what he said is gonna come true. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, why did Jesus say that? He wasn't just pointing them to some unknown future, some future that they couldn't yet mark on a calendar because they didn't know when it was coming. He had something really practical to say. He was saying to them, that kingdom that is yet to come should affect the way you live your life every day right now. It should affect how you handle your money and how you give and share. And so he goes on from that to say, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. He's speaking metaphorically there, right? He's trying to tell them with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Jesus was trying to get them to connect the gospel, the resurrection, the fact that he had risen from the dead and the kingdom has come and will come so that their hearts would be set free from possessions and tied to people so that our hearts will be set free from the love of possessions and tied to a love for people. That you wouldn't love your stuff, but you'd start to love people and that you would start to see the things that you have as a way to bless others. In verses 34 to 36, we learn that the early church is not just a bunch of poor Galilean fishermen. These are people who have multiple properties, at least some of them, as many as had lands and houses it says so some of them had some means they were wealthy they shared generously and, and by the way this isn't teaching us some sort of christian socialism or communism here the the tenor of the passage is saying that if you are a believer in christ it is the grace of christ and the resurrection of christ that ought to set us free to give in the same way that we've received imagine thousands of people and not a needy person among them. There are hundreds of people in the room this morning. If you could look up and down the pews, is there a needy person among us? If we were anything like this church, there shouldn't be. We should be aware of one another's needs. Let's be aware of one another's needs. Let's not allow a needy person to just continue to go on in need. Let's share, not because we're rich or because we're wealthy, because it really doesn't have anything to do with that, right? Some of you uh, are, are rich for a reason, and God's dictated that, and it's a good thing. I want to talk about that in just a second. Imagine all of these people, no, no needy person in their midst, and then you have this person, this man, Barnabas. It's his nickname. He earned it. If you have a nickname, you earned it some way or the other. Good or bad, <laughs> you got it. I've had a few nicknames, none of which I will share. If you get a nickname, you've, you've earned it somehow, right? I mean, have you ever met a guy named 
tiny. You know what I'm talking about, right? He earned that nickname. He probably is not tiny. He's probably a big guy, right? So this guy earned his nickname. His name is Joseph. That's the name his mother gave him. But he's called Barnabas 21 times in the book of Acts. He's famous here. Why does he earn this nickname from the apostles, Barnabas, son of encouragement? I think it's because of the radical generosity that he displays over and over. He's such a good man. He's such an awesome you know, example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. He sells property. He gives it to the kingdom. He wants to be anonymous, so what's he do? He brings it to the apostles, lays it at their feet, and trusts them to get it where it's needed most. It's a good thing. Think of the humility and the trust and the generosity that he's displaying. You know, we've got some Barnabases among us at Foothills, and I'm, I'm grateful to the Lord that they're here. I've been the recipient of some of your giving. I know others have been the recipient of one another as you've shared with one another. It's a good thing. But for some of you, this will be your main ministry in life because God has equipped you and gifted you so that you have the skills and the ability to make money and to make it, well, to make a lot of it. God's enabled you to do that. And why has he done that? So that you would invest it in eternity. Not so that you would simply use it on yourself. And I'm not, I'm not gonna set any limits. I'm not gonna draw any lines on your level of lifestyle. But I will say that God has done something in your life for a reason, for a purpose. He wants you to impact eternity in the way that you're able to give. And beloved, this is not a, money issue it's a discipleship issue you don't have to be wealthy to be generous you don't have to be wealthy to be generous and if money is an issue for you if 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 being generous is an issue for you then lean into the gospel and remember that the resurrection sets us free from from a fear that we might not have enough because our father has promised to give us the kingdom and so we don't have to love money we don't have to hang on to our possessions we can love people and let it humble you enough to perhaps look around you if you know some brothers and sisters, maybe in your foothills group or maybe you're an acquaintance with someone but you've watched their life and you see, hey, they seem to know how to handle their money. They're good stewards. Would it, would it be possible that the gospel would humble you enough to say, hey, could you help me? I want to learn to be a better steward of my finances. Well, that's a big leap for a lot of us to think in terms of that. But that's what we're here for, to help one another. It's a discipleship matter. It's about our hearts, and if God's speaking to your heart, maybe you could lean in that way and ask someone to help you. In the meantime, you can demonstrate generosity in a lot of other ways, just by giving your time and doing ministry in the life of the church. May God make us a church where there is not a needy person among us and where we are motivated by the resurrection of Jesus and the grace of Jesus to give and to give generously. The contrast, though, is how this unity is endangered. We see it established through Jesus. We see it experienced as these people are filled with the Spirit and give because their lives have been changed by Christ. But how is it endangered? And then we cross into chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back part of it for himself, the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's just read through the rest of the story. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Lord, the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. When I thought about this morning and the morning that it is for us, I thought seriously about finding another text. It's, it's, it puts a bit of fear in my heart to just read the text. I was talking last week to somebody, and I was out and about. I was, I was at Chick-fil-A, I'm going to admit it. And uh, I was at Chick-fil-A, and I was talking to a gal, and she said, oh, I just wish the church could get back to the book of Acts. And I thought, she hasn't read chapter 5 lately. She hasn't read chapter 5 lately. What do we see in chapter 5? This is what we see. We see that even in the most gospel-centered, spirit-filled churches, there can be deep problems within. Even in the most gospel-centered, spirit-filled churches, there can be deep problems at work. Ananias and Sapphira did more than most could do. And it was very similar to what Barnabas had done. But what they did was very different from Barnabas. And there was a problem with it. And that problem is hypocrisy. They were hypocrites. They decided to sell property, give the proceeds to the church. Then they decided to sell property and act like they were giving the proceeds to the church. Hypocrisy is religious drama. It's a show. Hypocrisy is when we use religion to enrich ourselves personally. And there's a lot of that that goes on in the world. Hypocrisy is when we use religion to enhance our reputation. This is what Ananias and Sapphira wanted at the core. They wanted a nickname like Barnabas. They wanted the church to love them, to appreciate them, to applaud them, to praise them, to thank them. They wanted to be in with the leaders. So they pretended to be something that they were not. The hypocrite is the man who is living a double life. He's here on Sunday morning. He looks the part. He sings the songs. He prays along with the prayers. He listens to the sermon. He might even take notes. But his life outside of this room on Sunday morning is wildly different. It's like the woman who speaks sweetly to people on a Sunday morning, but she's a gossip during the week. It's like the student who answers all the questions in group on Wednesdays or the questions in Sunday school on Sunday mornings, but he's living or she's living immorality during the week. That's hypocritical. The hypocrite is in danger, according to this text. When you act the way you think you're supposed to act and you talk the way you think you're supposed to talk, but your heart isn't in it, you're a hypocrite. If you pretend to be something that you're not, 
like Ananias and Sapphira. That's hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, this is what it does. If you practice it long enough, it will turn your life into a cold, calculated performance, and it will turn the church into your stage. They were hypocrites. And they were liars. Verses three and four says that Ananias and Sapphira lied. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've lied not to men, but to to God. When you lied to your brothers and sisters in the church, you've lied to God. And you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. The Holy Spirit isn't a force. He's not an energy. He's not an it. He's the third person of the Trinity. You realize how much lying goes on in the world? We probably don't because there's lying going on in the world and we don't know it when we're being lied to often. We can be honest enough, right, to admit that we are all liars. We have all lied. We've stretched the truth beyond recognition or we've just been right out there with it and been deceptive. It's not an accusation, right? It's just an observation of human nature. I mean, why in the world do we have to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth when we go into a court of law? There is an assumption that humans by nature deceive and lie, and God hates lying. I I read through the Proverbs every month, and I read one a day, and this morning, October the 6th, was Proverbs 6. And if you look at Proverbs 6, there's a list of seven things that the Lord hates. Two of them relate to lies, and false witness, and one of them sounds like it was pulled right out of our story. He hates those who devise wicked plans in their hearts. In Revelation 21, the Bible tells us that unrepentant liars will will have their share in the lake of fire, the second death. God hates lying. And, And this is a difficult story, and you might struggle with this story because you may think that God's judgment is disproportionate, that it's over the top, that it's somehow unfair. And if you think that, you probably are minimizing the offensive line. Because God is holy, and he wants his people's yes to be their yes, and our no to be our no. He wants what comes out of my mouth and what comes out of your mouth to be a reflection of his holy character. And so if you think God went too far, you, you, you're, you're probably minimizing his holiness. And when you minimize God's holiness, you minimize the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus traded places with liars and hypocrites. People like Ananias and Sapphira. People like you and me. They were greedy as well. They kept back part of it for themselves. The, the, the verb that's used there is used in the Old Testament story of Achan. In Joshua chapter 7, God's people come up against Jericho. The Lord tells them to destroy the whole city and don't take anything out of it except for the the precious metals, those things that would be used later to fashion instruments of worship for his people. But Achan saw all of that wealth, all of that value, and he kept some for himself and he buried it in his tent. And then the next city that God's people came up against, Ai, that was a defeat. The mission of God was stopped in his tracks and what happened? Achan was exposed, and Achan died for the sin of greed, and his whole family died as a result as well. It it, it makes me think about the early church. In this instance, God has unleashed the gospel into the world through his people, the church, but there is this hypocritical, lying, greedy couple in the midst, and it threatens the mission. It threatens the unity of the church I think that it actually gets worse. Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? They're, 
they're satanic instruments in the heart of the church because of their hypocrisy and their greed and their lies. I don't believe that this is demon possession. This is like Ephesians chapter four, right? Ephesians four, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold, just a foothold. Bad decisions with deep ramifications are never made in one big giant step. They're made subtly and over time because Satan lies and he says, it's not that big of a deal and we take a little step. And he lies and he says, no one will know and we take another little step. And he lies and he says, nobody is gonna get hurt and we take another step and we move the line and we move the line until we fall into it completely. And then we lose out on the long-term blessing of God because we want short-term gratification and pleasure. Satan is a liar. He filled their hearts and their thoughts with the hopes of being seen as generous, selfless people in the heart of the church without actually having to be such people. It's a distinct contrast here between Barnabas who's authentic and selfless and generous and Ananias and Sapphira who are hypocritical. They're inauthentic, they're selfish, they're greedy and their sin grieves the Holy Spirit and they die. These are not natural deaths, this is divine judgment. They tested God with their hypocrisy like the Israelites who tested God in the wilderness and never saw the promised land. This is the first time in verse 36 that the word church appears in the book of Acts and it tells us great fear came upon the whole church and all those who heard these things. There are two greats in this text from chapter 432 to chapter 5 verse 11 great grace and great fear and a healthy church knows what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord and to marvel at the grace of God Satan has tried to take this church down from the outside in putting pressure on them from the authorities in chapter 4 and now since that didn't work he tries to work his way from the inside out This is the holiness of God confronting satanic assault on the church. This morning, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper, to the table, and we're gonna do that, and as we do that, I wanna ask you to keep three things in mind, three things that I think they needed, three things that we need in light of this this text. They needed the fear of the Lord. We see that it came upon them, and we need it as well. What is the fear of the Lord? We, We are redeemed by a holy God. And he calls us to holy living. And we know that our sins count for something. God will not be mocked, the Apostle Paul said. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. He's writing to believers in that text. There's a tension because we know that in Christ we're safe. Repentance from our sin and trusting in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection brings us into the family of God. Our eternity is secure but God will not be mocked. And if we sow sin in our lives, we'll reap destruction. There should be a fear of the Lord, not a fear that teaches us to cower. I like how John Piper said it, not a a fear that teaches us to cower like a slave in the house where children ought to enjoy their father's love and care. that's, That's what ought to be true of our lives. 
And there ought to be a fear of the Lord, an awe, a reverence for who God is and his holiness that shows us, man, there is nothing good at pursuing sin. There's nothing good at following temptation. I should not run after it out there because out there is nothing but danger for me. It's the, the C.S. Lewis character, Aslan, right? He's good, but he's dangerous. God is holy. He holds us accountable for our sins. And apart from Christ, the holiness and the justice of God breaks over us as human beings like a hurricane. But in Christ, we're safe. Do you walk in the fear of the Lord? Do you really consider your life day by day, the words that you say, the things that you think, the way in which you worship? We're guilty of all of these things, hypocrisy and greed and lying. We need the fear of the Lord at work in our hearts. They needed the application of the gospel. Ananias and Sapphira believed some lies. They believed that their lives would only matter if they were praised and applauded and recognized by the others in the church. They forgot that God was glorious and that through Christ he had adopted them into his family. He made them his sons and daughters. And so they were set free from having to pretend to be something that they weren't. They were just like every other brother and sister in Christ. Sinners who had been forgiven and cleansed and given a new life. It was enough. They forgot the gospel that said, you don't have to fear that you may not have enough, but you'll have all that you need because you have a father who has promised to give you his kingdom, and he will. And so you're set free from a love of possessions, and your heart is tied to a love for people. And you're free to give and show generosity to them. They needed to apply the gospel in their life, and they, they needed, just like we do, they needed a life of repentance. And we need that as well because we're guilty of all of those sins. It's a brutal kind of text. It's not easy to read. It's not easy to meditate on. It's very convicting. We're guilty of all these things. So what's the difference between Ananias and Sapphira and you and me? Perhaps it's repentance. In these moments, this morning, God is gracious to give us opportunity to repent as we come to the table, as we take the bread and the cup It's an opportunity to repent. God's judgment is always mingled in his mercy. That's what the cross is about. The cross exists because man had sinned, you and I had sinned, and God must punish sin. He must judge it. But he also demonstrated his mercy because he substituted his own son, perfect, without any sin of his own, who would stand in my place and in yours and take the punishment that I deserved for my sins. And the good news is that he did not remain dead but he came alive from the dead. He rose from the tomb on the third day. And through repentance and faith in him, we too can have eternal life. And our lives can be changed and our hearts can be changed. And we can be set free from pretending and yearning for a reputation and being fearful about our finances and our giving. We can be set free to be generous, authentic, selfless followers of Christ in the world. Perhaps this morning what we need to pray in light of that great grace, is that, Father, you would make me like a Barnabas. You'd make me like Jesus, and I would be like Barnabas because he was very much like Jesus, right? He didn't consider anything that belonged to him his own, but he turned it over just as Jesus did. God, make us authentic encouragers and generous givers, selfless servants, trusting in you alone. 
Let's bow our heads for prayer. I'm going to have the guys go ahead and get up and get the elements, the bread and the cup, and we'll take the Lord's Supper this morning. And I want to remind you, as your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, let me just talk to you for a moment uh, while we're a bit quiet, that the Lord's Supper is for those who are believers in Christ. And so the bread and the cup are emblematic of the body and blood of Jesus. And so if you have come to a place of faith in Christ, then this is for you. When the elements are passed, it's your opportunity to participate. But if that's not been true for you, some of the children in the room, that might be true, you might need to let those elements pass. If you've come this morning and you're not yet a Christian, welcome, we're glad that you're here. But this is, this is a demonstration of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so you can just allow the elements to pass. There's a warning, actually, in 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul was speaking to the church, and he was speaking to them about taking the Lord's table, coming to the table, coming to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he warned them, and he said, some of you are asleep, and some have, are sick, because you've taken it in an unworthy manner. It's a struggle at that point. Jesus Christ has made us worthy. But when you come to the table, when you take those elements this morning, beloved, let this be a moment of reflection and repentance. Own any sin that you have. Commit yourself to make it right if there's a broken relationship and get it done today. And trust in him as you take the elements. I'm gonna ask the guys to come and, and pass it out and then I'll lead us as we take it together in just a moment.